Tina Koto, and welcome to Season 2 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay. Thank you for joining me as we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors share their experiences of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Ian Cross began writing his first novel, The God Boy, while on a journalism fellowship at Harvard University. The book would receive critical success and be turned into a film and an opera. Over time, Ian, like many writers, recognised the unconscious influence of his early life in the story, including his volatile brother Colin's influence on the main character, Jimmy. In 2004, Sarah Gaitanos interviewed Ian and asked him if he thought his sisters appeared in The God Boy in the character of Molly. I think it would be a combination of Pat and Peggy. Uh, because I did draw on, I think it's in the book, <laughs> an actual memory. Uh, Peggy was asleep. She was about two years older than I was. And I went to wake her up. It's in the book, yes, is it? Yes, yes. And I pulled the blankets back, and there she was. <laughs> a nightdress was, you know. Yes. And I remember dropping it and tearing down the passage. <laughs> so that, that was in the book. And uh, you were very aware, uh, every visit that she made when she came back, at how she had developed and how much older she was. And yeah, but, but that was imaginative response. because it was Pat, uh, Pat who was overseas and married overseas. Mm. So, you, you know... There, there is a distant, close amalgam of in a re relationship there. But oddly enough, it's only uh, in the recent years I remembered a girl called Leonie. I can't remember her. I remember her name. Uh, I was swimming by myself in the castle cliff uh, beach and I got caught in the tide and was taken out by a rip into a deep hole. Anyway, what I clearly remember is this girl, she would have been 18 or 19, perhaps only, perhaps younger, 16 to 18, pulled me out and dragged me ashore and put me on the beach. And uh, about three or four days, I said nothing about it. And about three or four days later, it was my sister Marion came home, and she was a friend of Leonie Cuthbertson, that's the name, and who told her that I nearly drowned and she had hauled me out, and there was a big family fuss about that. I've wondered whether the drowning business in The God Boy, although I, I was never conscious of it at the time, when I was writing it, why did the drowning? And I thought oh, maybe that was a connection, but that's again a speculative. That's the writing process, isn't it? Now you're a very fast writer. You wrote that very quickly, didn't you? Yep, yep. So it just took over in its own life and somehow draws on your subconscious. Do you yep. think? Mm. The journalistic uh, side of me came out there because I covered the trial of a boy who was on, up for murdering his mother. He came back from the car bales and put a rifle through the kitchen window. Killed her, I think, and wounded his sister. When I was writing the book, no detail came through. 
but I had, and I still have it. I can see that boy in the dock, fair-haired, and it was the magistrate's court preliminary hearing, and he just sobbed his heart out. And I wasn't the only one in tears. The entire court was in, at, some, at various stages, were in tears. When I was writing about Jimmy Sullivan, you know, you know I, I was only doing it about an hour at a time, I just had to recall the picture of that boy. And I had Jimmy, you know, you know mm. I, I was in tune. Mm. But it must have been 15 years later, I went back to my memory of that case and read that what I reported, and I reported how he sobbed the whole time. And the other thing that interested me was that there was never any explanation given for why he had done what he did. So maybe that was mm. the gap. Because yeah. there also isn't really any explanation for a murder in the book, except that it is all explained too much, you know, that you know, yeah, it all couldn't happens. take any more. Yeah. But there's this wonderful gap between what Jimmy sees and his intuition that, that, it, were, yeah. that something much worse is, is about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Did you have any concept as you were writing that God boy that you were really producing something exceptional? No, not at you all. No, no. And, and when was you finished it, it, did you recognise that, that it was...? No, no. I, I was doing it because of what had been stirred up in me by Ted Morrison. Yes. Ted treated me as a potential writer. Uh, his wife, uh, I visited his home. His wife was the secretary of Robert uh, Frost, the American poet. Yes. Ted would have liked me to have not returned to New Zealand, I think, although he was very oblique and tried, to, you know, I could feel his nudges and would have liked me to have gone on to another writing course elsewhere. Uh, American writers went and talked about things and I think it was about a five-week course but you know, it wasn't possible. I, I was going back to New Zealand. My professional obligation was to return to journalism. Anyway, I had a wife and child, and, yes. and two, you know, everything was. And I didn't have the confidence in myself that Ted seemed to see. Perhaps he was just encouraging me. But uh, you know, I packed up. It was unfinished, and forgot about it. Uh, had to do a trip around the States, then uh, returned home by ship via England, because that, you know, in those days flying, <laughs> was certainly, well, it was cheaper to go by a roundabout way by ship, uh, and came back to New Zealand. So how long were you at Harvard? For two years? Was no, it? a year. A year. And you're, 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 so I got back to New Zealand when it'd be 55, 56 period. It might have been 56, and it might have been the end of 55. I don't know, maybe January, February, but of 56. The other influence, of course, in The God Boy, you mentioned that you started writing in the first person for the first time, but you'd been reading Mark Twain and other American writers. Oh, yes, it was American writers. Uh, oddly enough, you know, I'm often associated to my benefit in sales in New Zealand, at least, with Salinger. But uh, the major influence was 
I'm a fool. The play that you saw. Yep, but, but the, uh, I read his other short stories then. Uh, Sherwood Anderson's short stories, in fact he wrote most of them in the first person, always involved an ordinary narrator, never an extraordinary narrator, just ruminating on what had occurred in his or her, uh, his life. I can't, don't think he ever handled a girl's or a woman's life. Well, you having uh, but, uh, not anyway. only the boy's voice and in the first person, but a New Zealand voice. Oh, yes, yeah. That was a real departure, wasn't it? Yep, yep. I mean, they talk about Frank Sargeson using a real New Zealand voice. He never did. His conversation and dialogue is Hemingway. John Mo Hemingway was the major influence in writers of my time, I think. John Morgan's Man Alone is taken from a Hemingway uh, piece in which a character says, I'm a man alone, you know, blah, 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 blah. I feel alone, you know, however. But Hemingway was the major influence of post-war New Zealand writing, there's no doubt about it. We're back in New Zealand after Harvard. Yes. And did you're back in the Dominion. Yeah, I chief reporter of the Dominion. And did you immediately start, continue with your writing of The God no, of the No, 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 I set, sort of settled down, readjusted, I think. Oh, we returned to our original home, or rented home in Berenpore. And at some stage after that, I dug out what I had produced by way of an untitled story and it was niggling so I thought well I'll finish the darn thing and I did this by leaving for work early, uh, going to the Dominion, editorial writing uh, started at two o'clock and I would get to the Dominion and take, I took over a friend's office uh, at the Dominion who was an editorial writer and just wrote for a couple of hours a day there. I don't know how long, from then it must have been a month or two months, perhaps three months, I'm a bit hazy about it. And I'm not even sure how far my work at uh, Harvard had progressed it would have been at least seven or eight thousand words, I imagine, but perhaps more. By going into this office, closing the door, recalling the face of the boy in the dock, I just started resuming the story. I forget how many drafts I did or at what point I decided that uh, as part of the background of Jimmy Sullivan, I presume by then I had him known uh, as Jimmy, it happened that I turned his religious feeling to advantage uh, for the purpose of the novel because he was angry, because he was a scrapper. I thought I could give this boy a, a religious, assertive character 
that really f f reflected my own r religiosity, but was a, a much exaggerated version uh, of my lapse of faith. So I had him angry at his uh, father and mother's situation, f fiercely angry and blaming it on God. Mm. Uh, it just took off from there. You next went down to the Dunedin in 1959 to the Burns Fellowship. What made you decide to apply for the Burns Fellowship? You were the first? Um, I was the first, the first one. Yeah. person to, to get yeah. that Well, I was going under. I was writing, writing what became The Backward Six, my second novel. I'd finish work at five o'clock and start writing about, again, it was based on a short story I wrote for Ted Morrison, uh, in part on the short story, including the girl sitting on the roof of her garage. I'd bang, you know, write for a couple of hours and catch the tram and go home for tea and. Uh, catch up with Tui and the kids, but I knew that I, uh, if I was to be a writer, it, it wasn't possible, you know, working a 40, 50 hour week. And uh, who, somebody rang me and said, would you apply for the Burns Fellowship? Anyway, I applied for the uh, Burns Fellowship. The backward sex hadn't actually appeared. So I, they asked for a, a chapter or two from it and I sent it down and then the, I was awarded the Burns Fellowship. But it was obviously on the strength of the God Boy. Mm -hmm. And I went down in 1959 with two children and settled into a flat, a second story flat on the high, off High Street and into a little office that they gave me uh, on this, again, on the second floor of the in old wooden building of the English department, as it was in 59. And I worked on uh, what I had outlaid for myself was to be a, the great New Zealand novel. I thought I'd give myself two to, two to three years to write this. and. Uh, it was to span uh, about a hundred years or so of New Zealand life through three or four characters. And I set about that. I had lived uh, an exalted life, uh, in my mind, at Harvard. And I thought this was university life. This was the bazaars and the life and the vi vibratory stimulations of good minds all around you and access to enormous riches and you could learn and respond and all that. And it was unfair to Otago to go from that kind of view and expect not the same thing in Otago, but something like that. But instead what I found was a dull city uh, it's, it's so wrong of me to make judgments when... But the equivalence of Otago to Harvard would be uh, a provincial high school.
exactly what a university was. Mm -hmm. I was suffering the disappointment, the quite unfair uh, disappointment in what I found in Otago University, simply because in my blissful ignorance I thought Harvard was typical of the university, and it was so different. So there was that, dis not well, let's call it disillusionment. So there's a whole host, not a host, but a, quite a few factors simply flattened me. And then my journalistic mind took over and I investigated the role of novelists and poets in New Zealand. Yes. And I think I discussed that earlier. But we didn't put on record. Um, you worked out how much you would have to, how many books, successful novels you would have to sell. Yeah, I'd have to turn out about one every 18 months or two years. And it would have to be successful overseas because the New Zealand market was inconsequential. Mm. And it would have to be successful in America. And I couldn't do it. I knew that. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to this podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you that NZSA is a professional representative body which lobbies for the rights of all authors in New Zealand. Right now, NZSA is working on the 2019 Copyright Act Review, lobbying for the right of authors to retain control over their work. To learn more about this important issue and to find out more about membership, visit authors.org.nz. By the end of his Burns Fellowship, Ian Cross felt that he was a failed writer, unable to do what was needed to make a living as an author in New Zealand. He'd stopped writing and was working for Feltec's carpet company when Marie Bullock, president of PNNZ, asked him to look into a public lending right for New Zealand. Although he was ambivalent about the cause, he agreed to investigate. I did that, you know, thinking I'd just have a look at it, but felt no great interest because I saw it as just a possible indirect way of getting a handout from the state, you know, I wasn't interested in. But what I discovered was that the library system was truly expropriating the potential earnings of writers because most of the writers' readership came from books borrowed from libraries. They didn't have to buy. I looked at the, the British case and found that they were just fighting scrapping among themselves and coming, going nowhere because they couldn't even agree on what they wanted. So I said to Maori, look, you know, I can do something here, uh, you know, I mean professionally, because I believe uh, that, you know, writers should be compensated for the library use of their books. It's quite clear a case can be made. Uh, give, let, let's form a subcommittee with me as chairman and give me Neva Clark and Ray Grover, who was a librarian. Mm, he was at the Turnbull, wasn't he? He was assistant li uh, Turnbull librarian. 
and uh, I'll see what can be done. Now, by this time, I'd already run a, before Feltex, I'd run the army recruiting campaign with some success. Well, it was successful, I suppose, although the success wasn't mine. It was the leadership of that campaign by a man called Colonel Lowe. But, uh, you know, my publicity and means of attracting attention to the various ways to recruitment for the army had taught me certain things. But far more importantly was the fact that I had, in working for Feltex, become very professional in knowing how to appeal to the public mm -hmm. through advertising and uh, through sponsorship. We sponsored the New Zealand Ballet. I set up the Feltex Awards to recognise an annual award system for the best uh, television programmes according to various categories of judges, people, you know, of discernment and good taste. <laughs> and we ran a uh, ZB, a national ZB programme, seven o'clock at night called This Is New Zealand, which was, you know, basically about stories of New Zealand or issues of New Zealand. And I'd also been on a Harvard business course, rather ironically, about 10 years after I'd been on the Harvard Literary uh, Academic course or, you know. Uh, but the business school taught me very many things, gave me a, a sort of structured way to organise mm -hmm. and direct a project. And you just didn't want something you organised how to get it. So I looked at what should be done for authors or could be done for authors and set about it on that basis. Used advertising and public relations techniques. Uh, hired McNair to do a study to have a good look at the earnings of writers. And we provided a list of 40 or 50 writers from memory and through PEM assured them of confidentiality and that it would be professional and they had to answer questions about what they wrote, the type of thing they wrote, whether it was on commission, what the royalties were, the nature of their books, the categories of what income they achieved and through what sources and also what other income they earned on radio and journalism for instance. And so McDair conducted that over, I don't know how, they produced quite a fat report. In the interim, I'd been dealing with the Library Association, who didn't support us at first, but agreed to support us when we gave them a guarantee that we would not seek library borrowers to pay any fee for borrowing books or the institutions that ran them uh, charged the institutions, you know, educational or local body institutions, a license fee, in other words. And so they gave us a guarantee, or they said, look, we'll support your case on that basis. And uh, so they did, you know, not entirely willingly, but they did. And it was there, they helped me with writing to, I think, 30 or 40 libraries which represented big city, small city, rural, uh, educational libraries. 
And I used my home address and wrote to them personally over the form I sent them to fill in how, how many cop, uh, New Zealand books in the, they had on their shelves and their type. But here I was using the God Boy reputation, of course. Mm -hmm. I, I was writing to them as an author and with the support of the Library Association. And they all responded. I took them down for secretarial as assessment down to my Feltex office and handed them over to Ia McNair because they produced their report. Well, first of all, the report signalled the first public move we made on the issue of uh, uh, the public lending right. And we turned out a publicity with a summary of the report. I have the figures somewhere. But the earnings of the writers was, you know, minimal. I think it averaged only as high as $4.50 for, for their books. $4.50 a week. It was trivial. I released the McNair report with all its documentation and its examination and its factual mm. findings to every newspaper, to every member of parliament, uh, to every cabinet minister, you know, to anybody of any significance mm. at all. I sent the report out to, and to television, of course, and radio. And the result, <coughs> it exploded, marvellous. About 80% of the newspapers wrote editorials of support. A lot of MPs wrote in saying, you know, yes, this is something that uh, we should be interested in, etc., etc. But after the, all the clamour died down, that kind of thing usually uh, lasts about, you know, two or three weeks. Interest moves on to something else. But I went on television myself on a gallery program and was interviewed on this subject. And radio were, uh, took it up, uh, even commercial, commercial radio. My big disappointment, though, uh, was Alan Kernow wrote a verse in New Zealand Herald, New Zealand's leading newspaper, just at the beginning of our momentum to convince the public that, and politicians that something should be done. And I've got his verse here, well, the last two pieces of verse. It was a fairly long piece. And he writes, I wouldn't stand outside the library, cap in hand, with my creative beggar's wine. The book you borrowed, sir, is mine. Give freely, sir. Oh, sir, how kind. If others were more like you, I'd find the strength to finish my next novel. It's the big one called Hangdog Novel. Pay as you borrow, sir. I'll make it as original as I can fake it, and twice as long as you can take it. I, I was shocked. So I investigated him <laughs> and found that he had gone to the State Literary Fund some years before with his creative beggar's wine and got a grant from the state, a handout of $1,100, which was a great deal of money in those days, to aid his literary studies in Great Britain. And then he was writing that verse. Did he not understand that the, lib that the borrowers weren't paying 
Well, it, it was very clear We'd, in the publicity handouts we stated, uh, you know, I stated because it was, I, I was no, no way going to be part of a state subsidy. We were not seeking a state subsidy. We were seeking recompense for the earnings which uh, writers lost through the free library uh, use of their books. Mm. And uh, that was and repeated and repeated, he knew. And uh, he sneered. And he, of course, will have I'm sure done quite well out of it. I'm sure in years. later years he made, did quite well out of it. He was also sitting on a professorial, I don't know whether he's a full uh, professor or he might have been an associate at that stage. But probably, but he had a professorial salary and was writing mm. uh, from the security of his mm. university tenure and probably had about you know, 20 hours a week free to do that. Yes, this, is, this highlights another thing about the writers in New Zealand, doesn't it? The academic writers, the ones who have that security and the time built in to do their oh, own yeah, work. Yeah don't really know what it's like for those who have On the outside. Yes, no, no, who no. are isolated. And Penn had a role to play there to bring everyone together, could have had, and I guess did through the audience. Oh, this, this for the first time drew them. I was sending yes. writing Morris Shadbolt and David Ballantyne, Charles Brash. I was writing to them regularly, keeping them up to date. And Morris was the power on the Auckland PEM committee. And I think David Ballantyne was too. And Charles Brash, of course, held up one end uh, down the south, uh, down where he was. All the writers were, they were quiet and quite, quite quiet, but were supportive mm. simply because, uh, you know, something was being done. But the whole thing was that I had Feltex behind me. I had three studies done, all paid for by Feltex as part of our arts sponsorship schemes. And maybe as much as ten to twenty thousand dollars went into it from Veltex. And we only acknowledged Veltex at toward the end of the campaign. At the same time I was getting a good a political response. Yes. We took a deputation to the then Prime Minister Jack Marshall, who promised to uh, help us. And then as further studies were made I saw Norman Kirk, bless the man, he bought it completely. Uh, he took over all the material and said, we'll do it. Now, unlike Jack Marshall, who didn't exactly say we'll do it, he'll, he said, uh, I'll support it. Jack referred it to, the, uh, uh, to his internal affairs department, which was like sending it into a waste paper basket, really. But uh, Kirk meant it, and when he was elected, I wrote to him as Prime Minister-elect. He had made a speech to the uh, uh, Booksellers Association and put it into Labour Party policy. And I wrote to him the day or two days after the election and asked him to give it his immediate attention. And he wrote back and said, I won't let the grass grow under my feet. He nominated the minister that I should see. And uh, things moved along very, very smoothly from then on. The libraries got a board. 
Education Department got aboard, Internal Affairs got aboard, although there were some hitches. And the bureaucratic mind was concerned with the difficulty. So I turned to New Zealand Data Limited and gave them all the information we had on the library situation, the holdings, the, the position of authors, and said, give me a scheme by which we could survey the libraries and work out the nature of the level of recompense for authors uh, according to the library use of their books. That would be the number of books on their shelves. And they came back with a clear-cut scheme. And uh, through the first meeting of that combined group, I took the whole thing and put it in front of them. But before that, I'd written to Kirk, telling him, bring him up to date. And he replied saying, will you please send me this scheme that has been formulated? Because I'd like to keep in touch with it personally. So when I went to this committee, <laughs> I said, we're not here to discuss whether or not a scheme should be implemented. We are to agree on a scheme and implement it. That's what the Prime Minister wants us to do. <laughs> and, and the scheme as New Zealand Data Limited came uh, provided was adopted with some modifications. I also had some legal advice. Keith Sinclair, bless him, set me up with a uh, university law lecturer, David Fabers. And he gave me some uh, legal advice on um, the implementation, which, I, which was very helpful. So from there on it went, the, you know, it was all over. The Vavers advised me I, to accept the thing should not be called a public lending right, but an author's fund, uh, a New Zealand author's fund because a public lending right involved international copyright considerations. And to have tidied that up might have taken another six months or a year. Mm. So pragmatically, Penn agreed that it became a New Zealand Authors Fund. And I think it was implemented in 1973. One thing that did occur, and Morris Shadbolt helped me, somebody had said and written that I'd put all my time and energy into this because I was lining my own pocket. They didn't put it quite as bluntly as that, but that was the reason for my interest. So the first year of the scheme, I never applied for the to the author's fund. And Shadbolt said, oh, look, Ian, he said, if you don't apply, it'll be seen that you are still treating this as a state subsidy. So next year I applied. <laughs> But the reason I didn't apply was that I, again, the thin skin, yes. the idea that I, I'd done all this just to put money, a bit of money into my own pocket. The political support is interesting. Um, Kirk, of course, was a great reader. He supported New Zealand writing, didn't he? New Zealand writers. Yeah, and he was very genuine. He was a self-educated man. And uh, if he had lived, the history of political history of New Zealand uh, would have changed he would have uh, won, the, won the next election mm. because of his personal mana. 
but uh, he died, I think, after 18 months. As a matter of fact, I wrote, a, wrote quite a good editorial on his death. Bill Rowling took over, and um, Muldoon made mincemeat of Bill at the next election, 1975. 75, yeah. yes. But if Kirk had lived, uh, you know, political history of New Zealand, contemporary history would have been changed. Mm. Did you have any other negative response from writers, or no, not negative response, but um, keeping the authors in line when this? Uh, um, well, that was my the British. The British were still scrapping. I went to the New Zealand. The, there was a writers' conference at Palmerston North, and I went to that and gave them an update and said, "Whatever happens, stick together." Mm -hmm. If we, if we start to argue among ourselves, mm. we'd be lynched. Because that's, that was happened to, the Brit happened to the British. Oh, Frank Sargison. Frank Sargison, yes, wrote that uh, he was organising a group and they were going to march on the library and withdraw all the New Zealand books. And apparently, authors in uh, Holland had done this. And I wrote a very gentle letter back to him saying, now, everything is proceeding nicely here and uh, we expect to succeed, but, you know, keep your scheme on hand. If uh, we run into trouble, you know, certainly stronger action it will be called. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was a kind of thing that, if it had been done, could have turned the turned the impetus. It would have been a, a massive distraction to the campaign. So you got everyone in line and everybody, and it did move forward very successfully. The one person who sounded, um, who was perhaps a little <laughs> put out by being told what he had to do was uh, Internal Affairs um, Oh, really? Well, Internal Affairs, I, in fact, I wrote to David Vavers with talking about, no, was it David? Oh, I wrote to somebody saying, dealing with internal affairs, they were bureaucratic, mm. slow moving, and always put obstacles in, in your way. Uh, they were negative. I felt as that, like a woman giving birth uh, uh, on uh, Minnie Dean's <laughs> baby farm. <laughs> you know, they were so, they were so anxious to, ki you know, to kill it off. What about Henry May? Yeah, Henry May was Kirk's nominated minister, and I went to see him. And the obstructive bureaucrat was sitting on his side of the desk alongside him. And May was extremely irritable. And he argued, he raised all the known difficulties of the previous four years. And I had most of my answers I didn't expect this, and I got a little angry. Then all of a sudden he sat back, and he turned to this bureaucrat and said, well, the boss wants us to do it, <laughs> and that's that, you know. So from then on, I knew that uh, we were safe. One of my satisfactions was that the British authors wrote me pen, international pen wrote me, of or cabled me a letter of uh, congratulation. The one value of this, and I think you were, you've mentioned it, uh, 
I think the whole experience put PEN on the path to becoming a professional body. Mm. But after that, you know, I, I stayed on the committee and stayed on PEN. Typically of me, though, I, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say I lost interest, but I drifted away. Mm. One of the issues during the 70s and 80s, and still today, is the New Zealand organisation's responsibility, or, or writers' responsibility towards other writers internationally whose freedoms of expression have been um, censored, and especially writers in prison. Now, what are your views on that? Well, I think, you know, I, I can't remember any issue in my time, but internationally, New Zealand should raise its voice uh, in concert with uh, international PEN or wherever the freedom of writers is uh, interfered with. Whether it does any good or not, you know, I, frankly, I doubt, but at least it gives us a sense of our own freedoms and by you know, expressing the freedom of others, we are reminding ourselves that other freedoms we, are, we mm. enjoy. I've never much liked writers being too close to politicians or political parties any more than I like journalists becoming involved in them. And I even feel today that uh, I react against uh, writers accepting a so-called Prime Minister's award annually in large sums of money. I don't think uh, writers should take anything, uh, this is a personal view, from a politi political hand, other than support for their cause or their freedoms. Uh, and such awards should be handed out if they must be handed out by the Governor-General, not the leader of a political party. After all, I reminded myself uh, not so long ago when drafting a letter which I tore up uh, in the 20th century, the main country most notable and strenuous in their support for the arts were Hitler and uh, Stalin, who were in fact the greatest enemies of the arts. Um, I was curious about the fact that you consistently ch um, championed the New Zealand product or the New Zealander, whether it was a yeah. New Zealand writer or the New Zealand appointment or whatever, and yet say you felt an outsider in the intellectual world, um, did that include, I mean the intellectual world includes the writers, of course, um, it seems to be a contradiction. No, I don't regard writers as intellectuals. <laughs> No, you don't regard writers as intellectuals? No, 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 they shouldn't be intellectuals, although there are intellectual writers. Mm. No, I just felt myself an outsider to the intellectual life of the country as I divined it through my reading of uh, Landfall or The Listener or my limited contact with the universities. I suppose that came to a head decisively when Professor Reed, John Reed, referred to me as a pig-headed chauvinist, which was quite an accurate description, I think, really, because I refused to embrace anything or I rejected anything that seemed to me to be an intellectualization that looked down on the ordinary New Zealander. Mm -hmm. 
as I knew them. And that uh, this feeling was probably generated by the fact that from 1944-43 onward, through the Young People's Club and through the pro-Russian years, I was always outside that socialistic embrace and rejected it. Some, there were one or two university types who were in, involved in it. That was how I saw the intellectual life of the country and didn't feel part of it. Uh, it wasn't right. And that also led me to reject uh, state intervention in, the, in uh, journalism. I had a very bad experience of that during the 1951 waterfront strike when we were banned by the Holland government and the newspaper proprietors accepted it uh, from reporting the strikers' activities for about two, two months. And uh, I was a very strong voice in the union, the journalist union, opposing it and called the proprietors gutless for accepting it. Uh, I just disliked whether it was, and that was a national government, by the way. Mm -hmm. I just disliked the idea of the state involving itself in an authoritative way with the mental life of the country. And that, of course, <laughs> was lasted during the 1981 Springbok tour. I rejected entirely the idea that the state should intervene yeah. and impose on New Zealanders what they felt they wanted to do. Uh, once you start going down that road, it seems to me, uh, you're using losing the values, the, the real basic essential values of a democracy. You don't impose from the top the values of a more intellectual or far-sighted or superior class uh, on the ordinary people put all those categories in quotes, mm -hmm. I reject them. Yes, I, you know, I felt an outsider in New Zealand, but not uh, of uh, the New Zealand people. been listening to an interview from 2000 between Ian Cross and Sarah Gaitanos on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. What we've played today is only a small portion of their discussion which covered other aspects of his life and career. The full tapes are available at the Turnbull Library of New Zealand. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Pub Charity Limited. Noturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.